All right, well, please turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 6 this morning. Judges chapter 6. As we turn to the next chapter in the book of Judges, we're also turning to the ministry of the next judge. And if you're visiting this morning, we've been going through the book of Judges now for quite a few weeks, about a chapter each week, although we won't do the full chapter 6 today. But let me just remind you that at the heart of the book of Judges, that the writer of Judges has told stories of six deliverers. He's compiled the stories of six deliverers whom God raised up to bring salvation for his people in times of crisis. And we say about the first three, Othniel, Ehud, and Barak. And we've moved fairly quickly through each of those because they are shorter accounts. There are shorter uh, portions, shorter stories told about them. In fact, five verses, 19 verses, and 24 verses, respectively. As we move to the fourth judge, who is the judge Gideon, we have a much lengthier account. In fact, we've got three whole chapters about Gideon, plus an additional chapter that functions as a bit of an epilogue regarding his son. And so it kind of carries Gideon's family through to the next generation and how that impacts the people of Israel. And so we're going to be in Gideon and his family, considering them for a few weeks. Well, the writer of Judges, though, tells the story of Gideon as he tells the stories of the other judges within that framework that we've looked at now several different times, that cycle of sin and then judgment and then distress and then deliverance. The only difference, as we noted about two weeks ago, is that each time we move through this cycle, things get progressively worse. So I don't like to think of it as a cycle so much as a downward spiral, right? Each time we're going through this, every time we go through the cycle, we're getting progressively worse and worse. That happens again today. We're taking the fourth turn of the cycle, but this time is now going to be worse than the previous time, which was worse than the previous time, which was worse than the previous time. So today we're going to get our introduction to the Judge Gideon. We're going to describe how he became a judge. We're going to see the circumstances that led to his calling as a judge. And then we're going to see his initial response to God's call. So let's look at chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible open, let me encourage you to, because we're not only going to read the passage, we'll have opportunities to look back at it again. Um, If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 205. Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the peoples of the east would come against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would become like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. 
Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring, you, bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the, of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. As we work through this passage, we're going to use the same outline that we've used when we talked about the previous three judges, because that's the outline that the writer of Judges is using to tell his story. And so we're going to see these four points. We're going to see Israel's sin, then God's judgment, then Israel's distress, and then God's plan for salvation. So let's consider these in order. First, Israel's sin. Israel's sin. That is how this narrative begins in verse 1, the first part of verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This has become now the opening refrain in telling these stories about the judges. This is the, the common introduction to every judge's story. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what's not, what should not be lost on us is that this is Israel's main problem. Not just in the days preceding Gideon's ministry, and not just in the period of the judges, but really throughout the entire era of the Old Testament. Instead of submitting themselves completely and wholeheartedly to the Lord, Israel repeatedly forsakes Him. They repeatedly do evil in His sight by worshiping the false gods of their pagan neighbors. Now the Israelites did not have the same resources that we have. They had some similar ones, but they did not have the main resource, which is the new covenant. We have the new covenant. And by that new covenant, we have a new heart capable of loving God and obeying Him. We have been given the Holy Spirit who helps us and empowers us and guides us into faithfulness. And so from that perspective, those two things, the new covenant and the spirit that comes by the covenant, we are incredibly blessed to have what Israel did not have. But we are also held to greater account because of these resources. 
The main warning of the New Testament is that we avoid becoming like Israel. We are warned not to persist in sinfulness. Ongoing, rebellious, unrepentant sinfulness is an indicator of an unregenerate heart. So if your life continues to show pattern after pattern after pattern of sinfulness, it could signify that there's something wrong with your heart. Because in an unregenerate heart, that's all that it will do. It will sin. It will have patterns of sinning. It will continue repeatedly to sin. It will rebel against the Lord. It will transgress His Word. And the New Testament warns us of this. We are warned against apostasy. We're warned against committing ourselves to the Lord and then wandering away from the faith. We are warned from doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so I don't want to just rush over this, although it's a small portion of our text, and though we have enumerated it many times already so far in this, in this account of this book, we must not let this be lost on us. When we read the, these words, we should be reminded that God's people are to live differently. We are to be a righteous people. We are to be a holy people. It should spur us on to greater and greater faithfulness. Too much is given. Much is required. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And that's what we're called to do and to be as Christians. Now in God's economy, we know that the wages of sin is death. And so for Israel's sin here, God brought His judgment against His people. And that's the second part of our message of our, of our passage. Let's look, at, let's look at God's judgment. And look at verse 1, the second part of verse 1. We see that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. This was the expression of God's judgment. Again, we're reminded that before a holy and righteous judge, all sin must be judged. Before a holy and righteous God, all sin must be judged. Sin is rebellion against God and transgression of His righteous law. To sin is to offend God by violating His righteousness and presuming to have an authority that is greater than His authority. And God will not allow this. God will not allow sin to stand. He will judge sin. Now during the period of the judges, God's judgment took the form of foreign oppression. God raised up one of Israel's enemies who brought terrible suffering to Israel for a period of years. And in this case, in the story of Gideon, that enemy is the Midianites. God raised up the Midianites along with their allies, their neighbors, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples that lived on the far side of the Jordan River. They together came and oppressed Israel gravely. They brought great hardship. They brought a crisis upon the Israelites. The Midianites and the Amalekites, they lived in the wilderness areas far east of the Jordan River. They were more of a nomadic people. They raised herds. They moved around from place to place. They were even involved in trade. You remember the story of Joseph. The traders who, who the brothers sold Joseph uh, to were Midianite and Amalekite traders. They went on to Egypt to, to, to do trade. So these were merchants. They were traders. They were nomads. They raised livestock. But during times of economic hardship, they would also raid agricultural areas for produce and other types of grains. And that's exactly what's happening here. God had given Israel a land bountiful, fruitful, with crops and with produce and with grain. But during these seven years, the Midianites and the Amalekites raided Israelite villages and plundered their agricultural produce and livestock. And the result was it left nothing for the Israelites. 
They had no food left. And so the, the misery that the Amalekites and the Midianites brought upon Israel was terrible. These raids were so great and the poverty that they left behind were so terrible that the Israelites here were reduced to hiding in the remote places, up in the mountains. They made dens in, in the mountains and in the, and in the caves and strongholds, places that were hard to reach. And as they would go and try to hide out in these places, they would take their food with them to be able to hold it back, to keep it for themselves, so the Midianites would not take it. But even these tactics were not foolproof. The Midianites and Amalekites successfully raided Israelite villages and devoured the produce of the land. In fact, we have the description here that they were like locusts that had descended upon the the, the region and left nothing but destruction and devastation in its wake. Well, this took place for seven years. And while seven years is the least amount of time that Israel would suffer at the hands of a foreign oppressor, the destructiveness and the devastation was much more intense. Israel's suffering marks a definite downgrade then in their story. But again, why do we say all this? Well, this is, this is all the Lord's doing. This isn't happenstance. This isn't random. This isn't the Midianites one day saying, we should go raid those villages because we need the food. This was the Lord providentially ordaining these circumstances and, and putting this plan into action. The Midianites and the Amalekites were the Lord's instruments of judgment against his people. Then it's in verse 1 that the writer says that the Lord gave the Israelites into the hand of Midian for seven years. That word gave points to God's sovereignty. He is God of all the earth. All peoples belong to Him. And of course, Israel is most definitely His people. And yet, it's as if God is relinquishing responsibility for His people. He is giving them over to the will, to the desire of the Midianites to do as they wish. And yet God even is still sovereign in this. He is using the Midianites as a means of judgment against the people for their sin. Well, friends, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God still judges people for their sins. But sometimes that plays out in this life, especially as people suffer the consequences for their sins. But we know that God's judgment against sin is ultimately eternal, What the Israelites face here is bad, but it's not as bad as it could be. The ultimate form of judgment, the ultimate punishment, the ultimate justice is eternal. We know that the wages of sin deserves death. And death is not merely dying in this life, not simply the absence of life in this world, but death is to be eternally cut off from God, to eternally experience His justice. And so if you're not a Christian, you happen to come in this morning, we would warn you of that eternal judgment. God will hold you to account for your lives. You will have to stand before Him one day. And there is an eternal judgment that is awaiting you in hell if you stand before Him guilty. All men are guilty. This is what we all deserve. But the good news is that God has made forgiveness of sins possible in His Son, Jesus Christ. We celebrated this a few weeks ago, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was raised again from the dead in order to vindicate us, make us righteous before God's eyes, to justify us before Him. So apart from faith in Christ, then we will all face this eternal judgment. But in Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, there is a way of escaping this judgment. And so if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you 
to consider what the Christ has done for you. Consider yourself. Consider your lives. Consider your sinfulness. Consider your standing before God. Consider your need for Him and then turn from your sin and trust in Christ and find His salvation. And brothers and sisters, for us, we can be grateful that when Jesus died on the cross, He died for our sins, every last one of them. We deserved God's wrath. We deserved God's judgment as we read Israel experiencing here. But Christ died to pay the penalty of our sins. He died to bear the judgment that we were due. We no longer have to face that. There's no longer a reality for us because Christ has, has endured it on our behalf. We will no longer face the judgment of God for our sins. Yes, we may have to bear the consequences of our sins, but we no longer face the judgment of God for our sins. This is all the work of God's grace. And when we think about God's grace and how God has spared us from His judgment, it should lead us to be even more thankful and to be even more faithful. Be thankful for what God has done. Be thankful for His grace. But let that turn and motivate us to greater faithfulness. To live lives for His glory. To live lives for His honor. To live according to His way. Well, God's judgment upon Israel was harsh as we read in the first few verses of chapter 6. And it brought great distress upon the nation. Let's look at Israel's distress in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 6 for a moment. It says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Israel suffered greatly under this Midianite oppression. And out of their distress, they cried out to the Lord. Now, as we have seen before, Israel's cry was not a cry of, of repentance. It was not a cry of brokenness for their sin. It was a cry, of, of, a cry for help. It was a cry of desperation. It was a cry of pain. It was a cry of, of expressing misery, their misery to the Lord. Lord, please help us. We are suffering. We are afflicted. And so they were turning to the Lord, looking for His help, looking for Him to alleviate their suffering. This is not a cry of repentance. What motivates them here is not their sin. It's not the brokenness for their sin. It's not the guilt of their sin. It is their circumstances, right? There's no confession here. There's no conviction of sin. There's no spiritual contrition. There is no godly sorrow. They merely want God to rescue them from this situation and usher in an age of peace that characterized the previous 40 years. When we finished off chapter 5, we saw that the land had rest for 40 years. After the, after the ministry of, of, of Barak and his judgeship, the land had 40 years of rest. And then after that generation, we have this new come in because the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. They just want to go back to the good old days. They want to go back to the good times. But there's no brokenness, there's no contrition, there's no guilt for their sin. Now what's interesting here in about chapter 6 is that verses 7 through 10 throw a twist in the plot, right? In the previous judge stories, the response to Israel's sin, to Israel's distress, was salvation. And God's going to provide that salvation again in this instance, but His immediate answer was a prophet and not a deliverer. It is possible that God had sent prophets on the previous three occasions, we know in chapter 4 that when the Israelites were distressed about their, about their condition, their misery, they went to the prophet Deborah seeking an answer from the Lord. They wanted his judgment for why they were suffering as they were and, and when he would come to bring salvation. But here the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites to explain to them clearly the reason for their predicament. And it makes sense why God would do this. The role of a prophet in the Old Testament was to declare the word of the Lord. And that word that they declared typically had three aspects. Remember, repent, 
and return. The Lord, through his prophet, would often, would usually call the people to remember the covenant. To remember what God had done for his people. To remember the special relationship that he had brought them into. Then he called them to repent. The prophet would call them to turn from their sins and, and then to return to this covenant relationship, their covenant commitment with the Lord. And so because Israel has a sin problem, evidenced by their repeated pattern of doing evil in the sight of the Lord and forsaking the Lord their God and worshiping pagan idols, he sends them a prophet to declare to them what is wrong, what their real problem is and how they are to respond. This prophet was an act of incredible kindness and grace. This unnamed prophet comes to make clear the cause of their distress. And again, the whole aim of this, the hope of this, is that Israel would turn from their sins and return to the covenant, and in essence, return to the Lord. Well, the unnamed prophet reminded Israel of God's redemption. He reminded them of the Exodus. He reminds them of, of the covenant relationship that God had made with them. He reminds them of their covenant responsibilities. Notice that in verse 7, he, or verse 8, he reminds them of what God had done for them in Egypt. He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He redeemed them. They were under Pharaoh's power. They were under Pharaoh's yoke. And God broke those chains and brought his people out and took them to Mount Sinai and declared that they would be his people. No other nation had that privilege. God was doing all this. He had worked supernaturally. He had worked powerfully. He had worked graciously to bring Israel to himself. And not only to bring them to himself, but to bring them to the land of Canaan, a fruitful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a rich and fruitful land where they could have rest, where all their needs would be provided, where they could live in the luxury of this covenant relationship with the Lord. So the Exodus there, as, he, as the prophet refers back to the Exodus, he's pointing back, for us it would be the cross, right? That's the preeminent display of, of God's salvation. In the Old Testament, that was the Exodus. The thing that God did to show His people that they were indeed His people was bring them out of Egypt. And so He's pointing them back to that moment of redemption. And what He is about to do is in line with that. It's actually a, a figure of that. Please remind them of the Exodus because God had showed them His love and His grace and His power there. God had delivered them. God had made them to be His people. But what did God require of Israel as a result of this salvation? Now, we need to remember on the one hand that grace is free, that what God did, He did solely for them, for their spiritual good, because of His good pleasure, because of His desire to show them grace and steadfast love. God had brought them to be His people because it was what He desired to do for them. He redeemed them to have fellowship with Him. But the other side of that is that Israel had to respond in faith. They had to obey God's covenant that he gave to them, they had to submit to God's authority. God was calling them into a relationship, and they had to enter into that relationship. They bound themselves by that relationship, and they had to live out that relationship. So in keeping with God's promises, the covenant promises, in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God told his people that if they would obey his covenant, that he would bless them. But when they disobeyed, he would bring upon them covenant curses. And that's what the prophet is explaining to the people here in verses 7 through 10. The reason for Israel's misery is their sin. These things haven't happened randomly. They have not happened by chance. It's not some fluke. 
in the universe. This hasn't happened because God is just being capricious towards them. What they are enduring has a cause. And that cause lies with Israel. It is their sin. So the prophet takes them back to the first commandment in verse 10. He says, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. What did God require of Israel? He required their complete, unhindered devotion to him. But they had forsaken the Lord. They had served other gods. And that is unacceptable. God will not allow them to be his people and to worship other gods. If Israel is to learn from this experience, they must understand that their sin is the cause of their misery. And if they don't want to face this misery again, they need to live in covenant relationship with God. They need to live according to His covenant. But that covenant is more than just an antidote to misery. In other words, it's not self-centered, right? We don't look at this and say, hmm, I don't want to be miserable, therefore I will do what God has asked me to do. That's not the motivation for obeying God, right? The covenant is more than an antidote to misery. The covenant was their life. The covenant was to be their source of joy and peace because that is what mediated in the Old Testament their relationship with God. So by living in covenant relationship with God, they would be out of their misery, not as a means to an end, because God had given the covenant to them for this very purpose to have life, abundant life. Well, how do we respond to the misery of our lives? When we face suffering, I think it is wise to ask why and to find an answer from Scripture. If our suffering is a result of our own sin, then we must repent and submit ourselves to God. Again, as we said in the last point, God will not judge us for our sin, since He has already judged our sin in Christ. But sin has consequences, sometimes lifelong consequences. And while those consequences may never change, we certainly can learn from them. Those consequences can expose our sinfulness so that we might repent and return to a living relationship with our God through Jesus Christ. But understand that repentance does not end at conversion. It's not like repentance is a one-time thing. It continues to be an essential spiritual discipline of the Christian life because of our ongoing battle with sin. In addition, we may I need to understand here that God may discipline us when we sin. God's discipline is hard. God's discipline hurts. And many of you can think about times you were disciplined by your own parents. I can think of some especially painful times when my parents disciplined me. It was hurtful. But it was needful. It served a purpose. It taught me something. It taught me a lesson. It taught me a, a way to live, something to avoid, something to do, how to, how to live, how to be. And so also God disciplines his own children because he loves us. He desires to sanctify us, and he uses his discipline as a sanctifying tool, as an instructive tool to help us to grow in the Christian life. We will suffer because our hope and our way of life is also opposed to the hope and the way of life in this world. The overall point here to make is don't use your suffering as an occasion to forsake Christ. Don't look and think that because of all of your hardship that it's God's fault that somehow you need to leave him and find something else to make your life better. No. 
understand that God uses suffering in our lives as an opportunity to draw nearer and nearer to Him. And when we suffer, it's not time for us to be fast and loose with our obedience. It is time to double down on our faithfulness. So when the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, He sent them a prophet. And that prophet rebuked them and called them to repentance. But that didn't mean that He didn't intend to save His people. Indeed, He did. And so let's consider this last portion, God's plan for salvation. In the context of the story, the Lord's salvation does not come about right away. That will come in chapter 7, the next chapter. But Judges 6 reveals how God plans to save his people. He will raise up a deliverer. He will raise up Gideon to deliver God's people. He will be the leader to bring deliverance for the Israelites in their war against the Midianites. And verses 11 through 24 relate how God called Gideon to be Israel's deliverer. Now Gideon, like other Israelites at this time, is in hiding, right? When the angel of the Lord appears to him, Gideon is threshing his wheat in a wine press. And that is strange. Because you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You thresh wheat on a threshing floor. But threshing floors tended to be elevated places, right? Flat pieces of ground in elevated places because that's where the breeze would blow. Would, would blow. And when you're, when you're beating the wheat, you're separating out the kernel, which is what you want, from the papery chaff, the outside chaff, a very papery casing. It's no good. It's unusable. You don't want that. So you thresh the wheat, you throw the wheat up into the air, and the ever-so-slight breeze will blow that chaff away because it's got no substance to it. But it's not, a, it's not windy enough for the, for the kernels to blow. So the kernels, which are heavier, fall back down to the ground. So it's a very efficient way to thresh your wheat. However, if Gideon were to do that on a threshing floor at this time, he'd be exposed. He'd be able to be seen by the Midianites, and then what would they do? They would come and raid his threshing floor. They would come and steal his grain, and he and his family would have nothing. Instead, he goes to thresh his wheat in, in a wine press. The wine presses were excavated into the ground. They were in dirt, or not dirt, but, but rock that had been excavated away. So there are two depressions in the rock, sort of two levels. And on one level, you would crush the grapes, and then the liquid would flow down into the second level where you would then capture the juice and bottle it up for wine. So Gideon is down here in the wine press because it is an, a, a, it's an opportunity for him to not be seen. He can still hold on to his wheat. He can still thresh it and u- make it usable for his family, for his clan. But he's not going to be exposed to the Midianites. And so he is, he is in hiding. He's worried about the Midianite raiders. And so it's in the context of Gideon hiding that the Lord's, that the angel of the Lord's declaration to him is even more ironic. In verse 12, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. It doesn't seem like at this moment that Gideon is a mighty man of valor. He is in hiding. He's hiding like everybody else. He's not strong and mighty. He is, he is a weakling. He's fearful. And yet the angel's words here are a big deal for Gideon, because it's going, it shows that the Lord is going to be with his people. In fact, he is with his people right now, and he is going to work through Gideon to bring deliverance. But Gideon responds sarcastically in verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken and given us into the hand of Gideon. The Lord is with his people? The same one that delivered 
us from the land of Egypt? The Lord's not with his people. The Lord has forsaken us. He has given us into the hands of the Midianites. Why has all this happened to us? In other words, Gideon is faulting the Lord for Israel's misery. And Gideon here is probably reflecting the opinion of the people, right? And if that's the case, it shows why they needed the prophet to begin with. In verses 7 through 10, they needed perspective on their situation. I wonder if you might respond to hardship the same way that Gideon did. That might seem like a natural response. Lord, why did this happen to us? Lord, why are you against me? And what we need here in this moment is what Gideon didn't quite have, at least not yet. We need a broader framework. We need to understand all of God's Word in order to help us understand why we endure hardships. We need to understand our lives within the context of all that God has done and all that God is doing as a result of His revealed redemptive plan. Well, the angel of the Lord doesn't answer Gideon directly. In fact, for us, it's been answered back in verses 7 through 10, but he doesn't answer Gideon directly here in this moment. Instead, the angel of the Lord commissions Gideon to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. In verse 14, it says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So God raised Gideon up for this purpose. Again, it seems very ironic, this guy down the wine press, threshing his wheat so as not to be uh, noticed by the Midianites, to preserve what little he has to provide for his family. Yet the Lord here is raising him up. The Lord is going to provide everything that he needs in order to bring deliverance to God's people. And much like we saw with the story of Barak and Deborah, the Lord will do the work of salvation. That's the main point here. The Lord is going to do the work of salvation. The Lord is going to save His people. Salvation is of the Lord. He is simply going to use Gideon as a means, as a, as a tool, as an instrument, in order to accomplish that purpose. But here's also the good news. Because the Lord is doing this, because the Lord is sending Gideon, Gideon is going to be successful. Like Moses, Gideon makes excuses as to why he cannot save Israel. Verse 15, he says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Make excuses. I can't do this, Lord. But the Lord is unimpressed with those excuses. And why is he unimpressed? Because again, salvation does not depend upon Gideon. It depends upon the Lord. And we see that in verse 16. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. God is the Savior of His people. He is the one who is merciful and gracious. He is the one who is the Savior. He is the one who is determined to save His people. He is the one who will do it. He will use means. He'll use the means of Gideon and the Israelite army to work out this salvation. He'll provide Gideon everything that he needs to work out that salvation. But the Lord is going to accomplish the work because salvation is of the Lord. And it's here in this moment after receiving not only the visitor, but just this great encouraging word, this commission with this encouragement. You're going to be successful. This is going to happen. Gideon reveals his faithlessness. Verse 17. He said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. So rather than simply accepting the word of the messenger, he asks for a sign. And even the sign that he asks for 
is silly, right? Show me something so that I know it is you speaking to me. As if the angel speaking to him was not enough of a sign. He wants something more. He wants something even more spectacular. Something greater to help alleviate his faithlessness. That conversation wasn't simply sufficient for him. Now the text doesn't condemn Gideon here for asking for a sign. But if we look at the total revelation of scripture, asking for a sign is a sign of lacking faith. Because God's word is clear. God's word is very clear here to Gideon of what he must do and how he must respond. And so Gideon, like us, when God's word is clear, we need simply to submit ourselves to that word and obey that word. But in this moment, even in the midst of Gideon's faithlessness, the Lord is very patient with Gideon. And he capitulates to Gideon and gives him a sign. Gideon tells the angel to wait for a minute. He's going to go home, prepares a meal, goes and gets slaughters a, a goat, brings back a, a boiled goat, brings back a, 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 an ephah of flour cakes, uh, unleavened bread. An ephah is a, a large portion, but a bunch of these unleavened cakes of bread and the broth that the, uh, the goat was boiled in. He comes and brings it to the messenger as kind of a, a meal for him to share. But the angel directs him and said to put it on a rock. So he puts the meat and the bread on the rock and pours the broth over it. And the angel then touches the food with his staff. And when that staff touches the food, it lights on fire immediately and is totally consumed. So this food that Gideon has brought becomes something like a sacrifice to the Lord. And like Old Testament sacrifices, the fire burns the offering, indicating the Lord's acceptance of the offering. He receives it as an act of worship and devotion. So when the fire is lit and the food is consumed, the angel immediately vanishes. And Gideon finally recognizes that the angel of the Lord has been in his presence. But Gideon's response is not one of joy or relief, but of fear. Do you see that in verse 22? Gideon says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. That word alas is very much like the word woe in the Old Testament. This is bad news. Something terrible has just happened. Gideon is terrified at what he's experienced. And even more, he's troubled by the fact of the person whose presence he's been in. He is troubled by the fact that he has seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And while an angel, an angel of the Lord is, an angel is typically a messenger of the Lord, a messenger sent from the Lord with some kind of news or report or announcement, this particular angel represents the Lord himself. If you were to go back and read this passage, you will notice that sometimes it refers to this figure as the angel of the Lord, and sometimes it refers to him as the Lord. And so there's, there's to be some kind of correspondence, whether this angel is simply a messenger or something even greater, a representation of the Lord himself. But Gideon recognizes that the, pre, the, pre, the presence, the, the person whose presence he's been in, is not one that he can just simply look at face to face, and live. He recognizes here that he is in mortal danger. But the Lord comforts Gideon. In verse 23, the Lord said to him, Peace to you, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon does not die, even though he's seen the Lord face to face. But God instead makes peace and gives him peace. In fact, we have here the true essence of peace in this story. Peace is not an emotional condition. Peace reflects one's true state before God. To have peace is to be reconciled to God. It is not to fear His judgment. 
but to have a right relationship with the Lord. Paul speaks about this peace in Romans chapter 5 when he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So to have peace, then, is to experience the contentment that God gives because we are in a right relationship with God. And God is gracious here with Gideon. God is gracious with him throughout the entire narrative. Gideon's sarcasm earlier in verse 12 and 13 and 14, he was expressing, he was making an indictment against God that God had failed in his covenant obligations. That God had withheld the steadfast love he had promised to his people. And so for that, for his accusation against the Lord, Gideon was worthy of death. But God dealt kindly with Gideon and gave him peace. And God's graciousness to Gideon in this moment is an illustration of the steadfast love and mercy that God was showing to his people. This is why God was raising up a deliverer. It was his desire, his delight to show steadfast love to them. In response to the Lord's assurance of peace, Gideon builds an altar in verse 24 and names it Yahweh Shalom. God is peace. The Lord is peace. Gideon applies this name to God because he personally received the peace that God extended to him. And it reminds us that our God is the God of peace. God is working to bring his people into a relationship of peace, to bring reconciliation with sinful people. He is desiring to bring people to himself. And through that relationship then, to give us an abiding peace. Because of this relationship, we not only have peace with God, but we have the peace of God. Well, God's call to Gideon indicates that his salvation is coming for his people. We don't know how much time elapses between Gideon's call and when he eventually rescues the Israelites, but it is an indication to us that God's salvation is coming. It is near. God is working it out and he will bring it to pass. But as we will see, as we work through this story, Gideon was not the Savior that Israel really needed. Already in this passage, we see that Gideon is flawed. And as we continue on, we'll see that he is deeply flawed. But he illustrates the fact that God has always had a plan to save his people. Even with flawed people, God has always had a plan to save his people. But for his true work of salvation, for the salvation that we really need, he will send another Gideon, an even greater Gideon, a better Gideon than Gideon himself. And this better and greater Gideon will bring an even greater salvation than Gideon would bring to Israel. And who is that Savior? Who is that greater and better Gideon? Is no less than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we can even see in this story how Jesus eclipses Gideon. While Gideon first accuses the Lord of injustice and faithlessness to his covenant, and then hems and haws about being God's deliverer, Jesus willingly and eagerly embraced God's call to save his people. The writer of Hebrews mentions in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, quoting from the Old Testament, but seeing the, the fulfillment in Christ, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus wasn't down on the wine press hiding from the enemies. Jesus wasn't accusing God of mistreating his people or abandoning his people. Jesus wasn't AWOL. Jesus knew the mission. When it came to him, he embraced it willingly, eagerly, and joyfully. And I couldn't help but think about Jesus at his baptism, right? At the very beginning of his ministry. Remember he presented himself to John the Baptist? He presents himself in part as an act of devotion to God, in part as a sign of what God was going to do through him, how he was going to bring salvation to his people, in part as an initiation of his public ministry. You remember what John does, right? When Jesus presents himself to John, how does John respond? Lord, no. You want me to baptize you? You need to baptize me. And what was Jesus' response? Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was saying, I'm, I'm here to do the Lord's work. God has commissioned me for this purpose. There's no getting out of it. There's no way out of it. I surrender myself to the Father's plan. And I will bring a greater and better salvation than Israel ever experienced in their history. By that statement, Jesus was willingly submitting himself to God. God had set his son apart from before the foundation of the world to save his people from their sins. Jesus didn't object. He didn't make accusations against God. He didn't hem and haw. He willingly and eagerly embraced the call. And by his obedience, his people are saved. Gideon was God's answer for the moment, but he was not the answer for history. Jesus is the better and greater Gideon. He has provided a better and greater salvation. It is for this salvation Israel could only look and long. But we have received this great salvation. May God be praised. May God be praised for this great salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we are indeed grateful for this salvation in Jesus Christ. We are grateful, Lord, for his willingness willingness to lay down his life, his eagerness to lay down his life for us, to submit himself to your plan, and to provide the salvation that we really need, to really solve the problem, so that we don't continue to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord and imperil ourselves by your judgment, but instead to find life and salvation and mercy and forgiveness in his blessed sacrifice for us. Lord, thank you. And may we walk in faithfulness because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.